You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Trigger warning. This podcast involves discussions of child sexual abuse and pedophilia. Listener discretion is advised. Alan J. Lerner didn't need to take suggestions from his assistant. He was Alan J. Lerner. He was a Broadway legend. He'd written lyrics and librettos for huge musicals like My Fair Lady, for Camelot, for Brigadoon. I don't know what Brigadoon is. He wrote it. He'd worked in movies, doing the music with collaborator Frederick Lowe for Gigi, and he wrote An American in Paris. But those hits were a while back now, and it was the 1970s. Lerner's work didn't fit as well into the Broadway culture the 70s had kicked off. Hits that had overwhelmed New York in a culture-shifting way in the mid to late 60s into the early 70s were sexy, edgy stuff like Hair and Cabaret and Company, and by 1971, Godspell and Jesus Christ Superstar. You know, the sexy Jesus musicals. Broadway was getting horny, and Alan J. Lerner was not a horny lyricist. His work was pretty traditional, featuring heavy costumes and straightforward love stories with catchy burst-into-song hits. And now that luster was wearing off. His last two shows were nominated for a handful of Tonys, but they were not the smash financial and culture-defining hits he'd had with Lowe up through Camelot in 1960. The chaste Alan J. Lerner needed to get with the times. He needed to listen to his assistant. I think you see where this is going. His assistant wanted him to adapt Lolita by Vladimir Nabokov. And I quickly want to give a huge shout out to one of the top keepers of Lolita history, writer Sarah Weinman, who we talked to last week, for collecting a lot of this information on the musical back in a 2018 article for Vulture, which I will link in the show notes. So did Alan J. Lerner understand Lolita? Uh... <laughs> I think that the story of Lolita is much more pertinent now than when the film was made. Humbert is such a tragic, flawed, and misplaced romantic, lost in post-World War II. There are countless men like him over 40 who find it impossible to wake up in the morning and not blink once or twice at the life facing them. 
Oh, absolutely incredible. Do you ever just hear how any person who has ever adapted this book talks about the story and your head just like explodes like that scene in Scanners? I can't, I, it's unbelievable. But okay, who's collaborating on this with Mr. Lerner? It's a composer named John Barry a suave Englishman most famous for writing the theme song to James Bond. He was in his late 30s to Lerner's 51. Or as Lerner would describe it, a contemporary man. Go off. Also on Lerner's team is producer Norman Twain, who is notorious in theater and film for being a gigantic personality with big hits and bigger misses. For an idea of what his vibe is, here's a quote pulled from the Associated Press piece on the auditions for Lolita in 1970. We've got to have a girl who makes a man forget the moral conventions of society. But it's got to be a complete mental situation. If Lolita's five foot five with a great figure, it would be perfectly normal for Humbert to go after her. The musical was to be called Lolita, My Love. And it's the last attempt at an adaptation Vladimir Nabokov would ever sign off on before his passing in 1977. By this time, he was living in Montreux Palace in Switzerland, working on new novels full-time and enjoying the residuals that Lolita continued to rake in. He is, as he was during the Kubrick movie, strongly averse to the idea of an actual 12-year-old playing the part night after night, calling it sinful and immoral. This is according to Ken Mandelbaum's 1991 book, Not Since Carrie. This statement aside, Nabokov appears to have had all the faith in the world in Mr. My Fair Lady at first, saying the following. Mr. Lerner is a most talented and excellent classicist. If you have to make a musical version of Lolita, he is the one to do it. Well, keep in mind, Nabokov also said that about Kubrick, too, back in the 60s, so let's see where this goes. Back to those Lolita auditions. In November 1970, dozens of girls, as young as 10 and old as 21, went to the Billy Rose Theater to audition for the head honchos. And Sarah Weinman's piece kind of distills the vibe at these auditions. A 13-year-old auditionee said the following to a reporter. I wouldn't like to be Lolita, but I'd still like to play the part. And a lot of those auditioning legally had to be accompanied by a parent. And the parents also had takes. There's a wickedness wherever you go. It's just lucky that my daughter only play acts it. The audition process sounded similar to that of Stanley Kubrick and James B. Harris's. A lot of young girls' bodies being appraised. A lot of extremely personal questions. Don't wear makeup next time, said one of the producers to a girl who was auditioning. I wanted to look sexy, the girl replied. You look sexy anyways, he said. Yikes. The actor eventually selected for the role of Lolita was named Annette Farah, now a casting director who goes by Chris Gilmore. We're going to be talking to her today. And at the time, she was 15 years old and from a Los Angeles family, more interested in her music career than being Lolita. But being offered the lead in an Alan J. Lerner musical, that was grounds to be launched into superstardom, honey. And so she jumped at the opportunity and was willing to relocate to New York from Los Angeles with her sister. She had had a guest spot on the Brady Bunch earlier in 1970 and had sung a number of obscure but very catchy teen hits in the 1960s and had a promising career ahead, including this incredible B-side I found on YouTube. She sang 1967's You're a Dumb Dumb. Iconic stuff. Everyone... Go to YouTube and listen to You're a Dum Dum. So at 15, 
Farah told the Associated Press her take on the story of Lolita. Oh, no, there's nothing dirty about what Humbert does. It's not a crime. And in the end, Humbert's cured. It's just a love story. Interestingly, she had not read the book at the time of being cast, so this impression she's sharing is an impression made from the libretto of the musical. Other leading roles included Dorothy Loudon as Charlotte Hayes. She'd later originate the role of Mrs. Hannigan in Annie. And as Humbert, the Shakespearean actor John Neville. He'd also been in the mix for the Kubrick adaptation, and at least physically and in terms of stuffy Englishness, seemed like a good fit for the part. Rehearsals began with February 1971 previews at the Schubert Theater in Philadelphia in mind. And producer Norman Twain was hyping it up, even as things behind the scenes remained very chaotic as choreography, music, and story remained in fairly constant flux. Twain assured local paper, the Camden Courier Post, that Lolita, my love, would be the best thing Alan's ever done, including my fair lady. And then Alan J. Lerner and John Barry, was that funny? Okay, that they would be even better than Lerner and Lowe had been. No, better than Rogers and Hammerstein. No, better than Olivia Benson and Elliot Stabler. I've never watched SVU, but I, but I thought that that might hit for people. When asked what Lolita My Love was like as a show, Twain said the following. No controversy, no nudity, no four-letter words. Nothing which compromises the taste of Nembokov. The moral is that total obsession with anything destroys a person, whether the obsession's a little girl or a philosophy. Okay. Oh, wait, he's not done. Could I be involved with an infet? Yeah, I could be. Absolutely. There are certain types of girls, little girls, nymphettes, that all else being equal would turn me on. If you met them in a motel by chance, but I haven't fallen yet. I've been playing it pretty straight. My wife prefers it that way. So before the short history of Lolita, My Love was complete, the lead, Annette Farah, would be replaced for reasons we'll discuss today. The show was completely reworked multiple times, and it had lost nearly a million dollars in 1971 money in production costs. A playbill from the show's final run in Boston at the Schubert Theater proclaimed a two-act sweeping production that started in Ramsdale with songs like In the Broken Promised Land of Fifteen and Dante, Petrarch, and Poe, all the way through Humbert sweeping Lolita away to the Betty By Motel and to Beardsley with Quilty's showstopper March Out of My Life. I'm not kidding. Nabokov never saw the show. He was enthusiastic at first, but much like his experience with the Kubrick adaptation, his enthusiasm for the adaptation wilted over time. By October 1971, he told the New York Times the following. If they're going to do it someday, they're going to do it. So I had better be around when they do it, not only to criticize the thing, but also to explain that I have nothing to do with it. So why haven't we heard about Lolita, my love? The show that brought you my least favorite line in all of music. Who is that viper who likes them post diaper? Because it never debuted on Broadway. This is Lolita Podcast.
Welcome back to Lolita Podcast. I am your host, Jamie Loftus. And today, I think we're going to get about as close to some levity as this series is going to get, because we are talking about Lolita on stage. Now, saying this episode is going to be a little lighter doesn't mean that there isn't still a fair amount of trauma being discussed. This is Lolita Podcast, and there certainly is. But today we're talking about the Broadway musical of 1971 by Alan J. Lerner, the 1981 adaptation by Edward Albee, as well as the smattering of international ballets, stage shows, and operas, and a recent attempted revival of Lolita, My Love in New York, which, spoiler alert, is the first adaptation of Lolita ever to be directed by a woman. I'll say it, Lolita does not work on stage, or hasn't. I should say. But the reasons why fall into the same trappings that most adaptations of Lolita don't, but in a uniquely theatrical way. I think the reason that the two Broadway failures that we're going to be talking about the most specifically rank as less harmful in terms of adaptation is because one wouldn't debut on Broadway at all, and the other would barely make it out of the starting gate. They were completely panned, and they never really got the chance to do much cultural harm to anybody, except, of course, the girls and women playing the titular role, another pattern that is well-established that we'll be devoting an entire episode to in a couple weeks. Today, we're going to be speaking to Chris Gilmore, formerly Annette Farah, who played Lolita in the 1971 musical, Blanche Baker, who played Lolita in the 1981 adaptation by Edward Albee, and Jacob Holder, the executive director of the Edward F. Albee Foundation. In this episode, I think you'll notice a few trends solidifying in the adaptations of Lolita, carrying over from the Stanley Kubrick movie that have a lot in common and are also very uniquely of their time. So with that in mind, let's return to 1970, My parents are in elementary school, and a few hours south of where they lived, Lolita My Love was in production, preparing for a February debut in Philly. The cast dealt with constant content changes, and the show debuted to, uh, these reviews. In its present form, which will doubtlessly be drastically altered before it leaves town, the show is only a ghost of Nabokov's comic masterpiece. The kindest thing that can be said about the musical is that it's a disaster. Yeah, by all accounts, it didn't work. This February shipwreck made the original March 30th intended Broadway debut more or less impossible. Lerner and Barry had a ton of overhaul to do and would need a successful preview to go off without a hit before hitting a New York stage. Producer Norman Twain went into damage control mode, saying that, quote, the show didn't work technically, and when things don't work technically, nothing goes right. I can see the backstage crew rolling their eyes from here. That was not the problem. It was the material. And after the failure of the Philadelphia shows critically, with this constant material change, we see some of the key players get shuffled out. Director Tito Capobianco is replaced by British director Noel Willman, and Annette Farah leaves the production as Lolita. Now, the reason given by the production at the time for firing Farah, who had been styled to look very similar to Sue Lyon in Kubrick's Lolita, was detailed in a gossip column of the time, which was unearthed by Sarah Weinman. It says that Farah was, quote, looking 24 when she was supposed to be 16, unquote. The reality, according to Chris Gilmore, was very different. More on that shortly. 
After Farrah departs, auditions for Lolita are held again, including a young Sissy Spacek, but Denise Nickerson is the choice for the role. In spite of Nabokov's initial anxieties of casting a girl of Dolores Hayes' real age in the book, Nickerson was only 13 during that next round of previews. She was 75 pounds and 4 foot 9, and her hair was styled into the blonde bob evocative of lions. And if Denise Nickerson's name sounds familiar, it's because she plays Violet Beauregard in the Gene Wilder, Willy Wonka, and the Chocolate Factory, and had just finished shooting shortly before taking the role. Nickerson sadly passed away last year. But with the changes in cast and libretto made, the show launched again that March in Boston at the Schubert Theater, and it only lasted nine performances. Luckily for us, or put a pin in that, maybe not, but for my purposes, lucky, a recording from the audio board from Boston is preserved in full, giving us recordings of the songs and an idea of what the show sounded like. Although the extensive dance numbers, yes, you heard that right, remain lost to history. And no matter how many giggles of enjoyment you hear from the 1970s Bostonians in the clips you're going to hear today, the reviews in Boston were just as rough. I'm afraid it's going to be a case of better never than late. Do we take it as farce or melodrama or satire or just a dirty musical comedy? Some good music and some fine wit, but it is done in by the plot. It needs style and taste and depth, and these are things which Alan J. Lemmer's idea of theater evidently can no longer offer. Ooh, that last review was from the Harvard Crimson. So just imagine like an 18-year-old with a suit that's too big saying that. So Lolita, my love, flops in Philly. It flops in Boston. And Lerner was desperate to save the production. He rewrote the show again, twice, renamed it Light of My Life, which seems like kind of a lateral move in terms of creepy sounding titles. And he tried to recast the leads again, pursuing Rex Harrison for Humbert. Rex Harrison was in My Fair Lady and Haley Mills for Lolita. And Haley Mills at this point was too old for the role by quite a bit at age 24. And she had already turned down the role of Lolita in Stanley Kubrick's production nearly 10 years earlier. Nabokov had this to say about Farrah and Nickerson, the two Lolitas cast in a musical he had never seen. Both girls, the one they fired and the one who replaced her, were awful, little boozemy girls, the wrong type altogether. Uh, what? By the end, Lolita My Love had hemorrhaged a million dollars and had never debuted on Broadway. Everyone was ready to move on, and they did. But don't cry for this musical, because I think you will understand why it flopped when we give the one surviving bootleg recording a little listen. This adaptation is so extremely off the mark that it was genuinely hard for me to keep up with the whiplash of the tone. Like if you thought the Kubrick adaptation was being played too much for comedy, you have not heard anything. This musical isn't just a comedy of manners. Humbert Humbert is presented as a full-on comedic hero. And Lolita My Love never made it far enough into production to ever release a cast album. So what's being pulled from here is a rehearsal that's taking place in front of an audience in Boston, my home city and... Please do not judge them too harshly for how much they seem to love this. 
There's a lot of adaptation changes that were popularized in Kubrick's Lolita that follow through to this adaptation. Everyone calls the lead Lolita instead of Dolly or Dolores. Quilty has a hugely inflated presence, and Humbert is a long-standing teacher. But the bizarreness of this adaptation is uniquely its own. It opens with Humbert Humbert talking to the audience at the beginning of the show, explaining what nymphets are to us. The stage format does make it much easier for Humbert to break the fourth wall and speak to the audience directly, and this show does take smart advantage of that at times. How many of you have ever committed a murder? I found it a surprisingly unsurprising experience. For 18 years of my 40, I have been a teacher. And every morning while shaving, I invariably looked in the mirror and said, Humbert, you look exactly like a teacher. The day after the murder, I looked in the mirror and I said, Humbert, you still look exactly like a teacher. Humbert says he was teaching at a girls' school in Switzerland, had a breakdown, then goes to Ramsdale, Vermont to give lectures at the local college. Now, where in New England Ramsdale is kind of varies depending on the adaptation. It's like New Hampshire for Kubrick, Vermont in this adaptation, who knows why. But Humbert does mention to us that he got divorced. Humbert goes to Ramsdale and meets Charlotte, who brings up her deceased husband, Harold, and shows Humbert her dead husband's gun and his ashes. You're married? Divorced, madam. Happily divorced many years ago in Paris. Divorced in Paris. Oh, how romantic. (laughs) There's a lot of laughing on this recording. And Dorothy Loudon is definitely going for comedy with Charlotte here. But also it seems like everybody's going for comedy. Denise Nickerson is introduced to us as Lolita. And at age 13, she really does sound 13, possibly more so than anyone who has ever played the part. You are Lolita. Lo, Lola, Lolita. They're all me. And just keep in mind for a reference of how old she looked at this time, she plays Violet Beauregard in Willy Wonka this same exact year. Humbert's journals are significantly watered down to keep things light. And he sings about Annabelle to Lolita in the song In the Broken Promised Land of Fifteen. Perhaps it looks more like a little girl that I knew many, many years ago. Where? In a Princeton by the sea. Lolita never learned of Annabelle in other adaptations that I know of, so it's an interesting deviation. In the broken promised land of fifteen Tears that fell upon the sand still are seen Another repeated trend here is that Charlotte is so heartlessly treated by the script that the audience is trained to respond to some really brutal lines from Humbert with laughter. Rumbling upstairs like a truck on the street, bursting into my room like a walrus in heat, that unspeakable flight driving out of my sight, my Lolita, the light of my life. Humbert is preparing a lecture for Charlotte's group on the poets. I intend to dwell exclusively on Dante, who fell in love with Beatrice when she was nine, Petrarch, who fell in love with Laura when she was twelve, and Edgar Allan Poe, who married Virginia when she was fourteen. Humbert also makes very little effort to conceal his true nature in this show, but the people surrounding him are written to be so clueless that it doesn't seem to matter. For my money, he couldn't be more obvious. I won't speak to one of them, only to Lolita. And Lolita, while remaining and behaving 12 years old, 
is still framed to be a seductress, and her quote-unquote flusiness is often a pause-for-laugh moment, especially when Quilty's on stage. I'd love to see little Lolita. She must have grown. She's sleeping out tonight. Mm, she must have. Pulling from Kubrick here, Quilty comes to Ramsdale and meets Humbert. He's famous, his plays are on TV, and he's also already familiar with the concept of a nymphet. Nymphet, a nymphet, my kneecaps are water. Out of Arizona! Say, how is your daughter? Gross. This is a song called Dante, Petrarch, and Poe. This song is maybe the best and the worst of what all of the adaptations have to offer, all said and done. A series of lectures, exclusive lit features, poets enraptured and captured by creatures barely pubescent, 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 who charm them, enthrall them. What else is there to call them but a nymphet? Because it's gross and awful and trying to make you laugh about one of the worst crimes that plagues humanity. But it's also written by the same guy who did My Fair Lady and the music is good. My head is exploding. Who is that viper who likes them post diaper? Who is that viper that likes them post diaper? Why would you write that? This is how that song ends. I don't know. Back at the house, Charlotte tries to seduce Humbert with a show-stopping number that I'm pretty sure includes an extensive dance routine, but Lolita comes home from a party and she and Humbert immediately start flirting. You remind me of a sleepy flamingo. I'll cut it out, home. Charlotte gets a more sympathetic moment than she does in other adaptations at this point. She expresses regret at coming to Ramsdale and expresses her loneliness. Lolita then delivers Charlotte's letter, and while Lolita is away, Humbert and Charlotte get married. Do you, Lolita's mother, take this man to be Lolita's stepfather? Humbert, in keeping with being the cruelest Humbert in this entire adaptation catalog, actually, maybe, put a pin in that till later in the episode, but Humbert then sings a literal song about how much he hates being married to Charlotte for only 20 days. 20 days she talked and talked, 20 days we walked and walked, in the rain that wouldn't ebb, till my toes began to web. Following that, he sings a whole song about all the ways he wants to kill her. I would never have the heart to shoot her with a gun. The way that this song is just presented as women, right? With my hands or with the rope, that polluter of my life, with the hatchet or a knife, blow her up or let her sink, line her bathing suit with zinc, broken bottle, bat or brick, make it slow or make it quick. It's at this point in the show, especially, where Humbert's word is taken at face value. Here, he's the comedic hero, the maligned husband with the loud, emasculating wife who's preventing him from doing what he wants to. I would never have the heart to poison her to death. Charlotte finds Humbert's journal as normal. She's furious, but then this is also played for comedy. How did we ever get a child like that? Where did she come from? This happens right after she realizes her new husband wants to sexually abuse her 12-year-old daughter. 
I mean, at this point, I'm not surprised, but Jesus, Charlotte gets hit by the car, Humbert is informed, and then the crowd laughs and laughs as he sings the reprise about the song about him wanting to kill her. He gets a hotel room and tells the camp not to mention Charlotte's death, picks Lolita up, and takes her to the Betty Bye Hotel. Intermission! We're at the Betty Bye Hotel, which is the same thing as the Enchanted Hunter's Hotel. Lolita says that Charlotte is going to but she doesn't use the incest word as she does in the book. Now, we get a lot more Lolita in this adaptation than we do in some others. And to be fair, we do see different sides of her emotionally. Shortly after getting to the hotel, she says that she wants to see her mom and leave the hotel. In response, Humbert sings her a song called Tell Me, Tell Me to try to seduce her into not wanting to go home. Let me, let me make you happy now. Now, in the book, this is the scene where Humbert first rapes Lolita, and the musical is wise enough to reference it without showing anything. The way Humbert describes the moment to the audience, though, is... Her adorable face on my naked chest. She told me I was not the first. Oh, how innocent is the Lord. He thought he was punishing a sinner. He only lessened my guilt. It's like that. And when she learns that her mother's been killed, she has a far more expressive outburst at him than in the book. Don't touch me! I hate you! You're a cheat! And a liar! And a filthy old man! You never cared about her! You lied to get me, are you? You! <laughs> Why do women always have to cry? They go straight to Beardsley, skipping the entire road trip. Lolita tries to bribe him about the play immediately, says, I love you, to increase the likelihood of getting what she wants. The scene with Lolita's headmistress on whether she can do the play or not is included, but it's turned up to an 11. The headmistress gives Humbert an ultimatum that he must either let Dolly do the play or go to a weird class with her two nights a week where they get to the root of her sexual trauma. Like in Kubrick's adaptation, Quilty is very present in Beardsley. We see him at the school, and Humbert is well aware that he's around. He's not on the margins or in disguise, as in other versions. Tell me about the cast. They must be quite young. Oh, young on the outside, but older on the inside. Mm, that's a winning combination. In fact, there's a whole scene with Quilty and Lolita. Quilty openly flirts with her while they're at school, and then he sings a song called March Out of My Life about his own tortured attraction to Lolita. Meanwhile, Lolita is portrayed as far more outwardly devious than she is in Nabokov's book. She blackmails Humbert. She says she'll tell her friends about him if he doesn't pay up. He's portrayed sympathetically as a man who is losing touch with reality and being tricked by a girl who seems to be doing absolutely fine. You cannot torment me like this. I love you too much. Yeah, I know. Is that all you have to say? I don't want to be loved so much. It's no fun, at least for me. But in this scene, for all of this musical's glaring, glaring failures. I really like the song that Lolita sings here at the height of her outward anger at Humbert. It's called All You Can Do Is Tell Me You Love Me. Cause all you can do is keep me in prison and tell me it's love. I tell you it isn't cause all you can do is think about you, just you. 
Now, Humbert is still framed as pathetic, and she's framed as a mastermind, but I thought this was a solid, cathartic look into Lolita's mind. Humbert gives the idea to leave town, and they leave Beardsley. Just as in the book, she gets away, and three years pass. Humbert runs into Lolita's old friend Mona from Beardsley. Fun fact, this is played by Judy Garland's daughter, Lorna Luft. Mona tells her that Lolita ran away with Quilty. Humbert kills Quilty before going to see Lolita. And Lolita has just heard about Quilty's murder when Humbert arrives. Lolita refers to Quilty's attempt to coerce her into being in pornography as group activity. But she says that she forgives him. He was bad, but he was fun. At the end, Humbert is arrested in front of Lolita and the show is over. Just like in the Kubrick movie, Lolita lives. Yay. I mean, what else is there to say? It's all right there that this was truly a springtime for Hitler attempt to make one of the most hideous crimes a person can commit into a lighthearted musical that blames the child that, in the case of Denise Nickerson, looks and sounds very much like a child for her own abuse. Kubrick's adaptation looks deeply nuanced by comparison, and the story behind the scenes was just as unsettling. I mentioned Annette Farah earlier, the original Lolita in Lolita, My Love, and the girl who appears on the poster even after being replaced. We'll be talking to her at length in our episode on the actors who have played Lolita in the past, but I wanted to share this here because in the story of this musical, she is generally reduced to a footnote in the already hard-to-access history of the show. And that's not fair, because the press clipping I quoted earlier about her looking 24 more than 16 as the reason for her dismissal was not the case at all. Farrah would have been 15 going on 16 at this time, a minor with very little control over how she was styled. She's now a casting director and producer in Los Angeles who goes by Chris Gilmore, and she has a new project called Blood Pageant starring Snoop Dogg. I know, she rocks. We caught up over the summer and she explained the circumstances of her dismissal from Lolita, my love. Had you read the book before going into the show or was or had you seen the, the movie from the 60s or? So I never read the book. And when I, Alan asked me that, I said, no, Mr. Lerner, I never read the book. And he said, well, don't. He said, since you didn't, I want you to put the spin on it, you know, that you. And he worked with me a little. He counseled me. And, you know, we did work through the problem that I had never dated. I was so virginal and perfect with that, Mm -hmm. that it was something that I wasn't, you know, going to hide from him. I was saying, well, you know, approaching this, here's my thought. The, uh, there was one scene, it was the most risque scene we had, um, where I had a little blue nightgown. It was short, but it looked like a dress Mm -hmm. in, you know, thank God it wasn't like see-through or anything, but it looked like a little blue baby doll dress. It was really cute. And so, um, I'm supposed to be in a motel room with, Humbert Humbert, I take my hand and believe me, they rehearsed this thing so many times because it was so important to them uh, how my hand raised from the bed to like get my finger and call him in. Mm-hmm. And, that, and then the lights go out. So they never showed two people getting together or anything, but it was re- very, um, it was like a ballet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, cause, cause I, well, well, I'm jumping ahead though. I go, what's, what's the snaps in the top of my nightgown? Mm-hmm. What the heck is this? What did they do to it? And uh, nobody wanted to tell me. And this is a hell of a way to hit it on an actress. But, you know, um, I I went around and then somebody said, well, Mr. Lerner will come in. And, and so he told me, well, the snaps are in the top because you're going to drop your nightgown. 
you're going to rip it off and drop it in that scene rather than, I said, but yeah, but we rehearsed for three days how to lift my finger up to call him to the bed. You wanted it sensual. You wanted it a certain way. And now all of a sudden I'm not going to lift my finger. You know, I, I was, a I, I trained method, Meisner, comedy, improv. I added all, I, I, I sang. Uh, and yet they, 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 they wanted me to be a stripper too. And there's nothing wrong with strippers. God bless them. But I wasn't a stripper and I shouldn't have had to be a stripper. I mean, you almost feel guilty like you're killing somebody to walk away from it. Mm -hmm. And so I had this big conflict inside because everything inside of me said, I don't want to drop this outfit in front of hundreds of people. Well, you were a kid. You were 15, maybe 16. And that's not a reasonable request for a child. And it's demeaning to me. It almost, it almost, um, you know, adulterates the fact that I'm a singer and actor. And if that's what people come for, then they're not coming for the rest of the art, you know. So I cried, and then I called my agent at ICM. He was on the West Coast, and he said, "I'll be there tomorrow. I'm dropping everything." Um, he's not with them anymore, but his name was Ron. Ron was amazing, mm -hmm. and so. He flew to the coast. He said, this isn't in your contract. They can't do this to you. And you're a minor. And uh, he had a talk with them. And they said, but we have to add this. Hair has big box office sales. We want this. And she won't be naked. She'll have a see-through body stocking on. Well, I don't know what the difference is, really. I mean, if I know and I could see your breasts and I could see your cha-cha and everything else, then you're naked. You know, sure. it doesn't matter if you have a see-through body stocking or not. And so I refused, and then I'll never forget the producer's last words. He said, well, you're too virtuous. Thank you so much to Chris Gilmore, and we'll be talking more about her career and experience in Lolita soon. She has had a fascinating life so far. So there's obviously a lot to unpack with this musical. I mean... Who is that viper? Yes, but also other stuff. We're going to analyze Lerner's Lolita and Albie's Lolita together towards the end of this episode. But one thing I want to say here is that in spite of all the bad feedback Lerner rightfully got in response to this show, almost none of it had to do with the quality of he and Barry's music. And I wouldn't call myself a musical theater expert, but I was too into Phantom of the Opera in middle school. And as such... I feel qualified to comment because a lot of the music in Lolita My Love is extremely sticky. And that's another reason I'm glad a proper cast album never got released. As we're going to discuss in future episodes about how Lolita and Dolores have been remembered in music, one of the most effective ways to get bad info into the minds of the general public is to make a simple, catchy, highly repeatable song about it. Dante Petrarch and Poe is one of the most abjectly creepy songs I have ever heard, but it's been stuck in my head for six months against my will. While Lolita My Love's music is an extreme example of this, think of other earworms that have gotten similar messages across in hit songs. I literally couldn't possibly name them all. It would take all week. I mean, off the top of my head, you have every Disney villain song ever. You have like blurred lines. I'm a militant feminist and I listened to that song for an entire summer. Really any like legendary 70s boomer band has a famous song that is an ode to an underage girl as an ostensibly consenting party. And then think of Lerner's own creepy immortal hit, the song Thank Heaven for Little Girls from 1958's Gigi. I hadn't thought about this song in a very long time, and so I'm going to share some of the lyrics here. Thank Heaven for Little Girls. 
They grow up in the most delightful way. Those little eyes, so helpless and appealing, when they were flashing, send you crashing through the ceiling. Nabokov, why did we hire this man? I mean, the people selected for these adaptations, it's a problem. So if you thought that Lolita, my love, flopping would put Broadway off the whole story for another generation, you would be incorrect. Just 10 years later in 1981, a handful of years after Nabokov's death, the Nabokov estate, that is to say Vera and Dmitry Nabokov at that point, approved playwright Edward Albee to do a very different, gritty, non-musical play adaptation. And spoiler alert, it also never makes it to Broadway, but for different reasons. Allow me to explain. In what must be one of the best hidden secrets of Broadway casting shame, Albie's Humbert Humbert is Donald Sutherland. I'm not kidding. And his Lolita is played by Blanche Baker, who at the time of this production was around 24 years old. Donald Sutherland could not be reached for this podcast, but what we know about the behind the scenes of this production was that, like Lolita My Love, it was incredibly tumultuous. Albie had the full cooperation of the Nabokov estate, but at this point, the primary contact was Nabokov's son Dmitri, whose track record overseeing adaptations was mixed. This wasn't a great period in the career or life of Edward Albee, who'd gone through a period of extreme success with works like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf in the 1960s, he'd won a Pulitzer in 1975 for a play called Seascape. He was a master of dialogue and style, but not necessarily of adaptation. Albie had had some success adapting Carson McCullers to the stage and another with Everything in the Garden from a play by Giles Cooper, but his attempt to adapt Truman Capote's Breakfast at Tiffany's in 1966 never even opened on Broadway, and his attempt at Nabokov's Lolita in 81 only ran 12 shows before closing. Albie's strength was his own voice, a leader in the theater of the absurd who, in this Jamie's opinion, had such a distinct voice that it seemed to kind of chafe with the very distinct voice of Nabokov he was trying to adapt. Albie was very edgy and very sharp, unafraid to show and simulate sex to shock his audience, the same things that Nabokov intentionally hid behind curtains of language and deception to try and fool his jury into sympathizing with the despicable protagonist. Albie's interpretation of Humbert leaves no question of who he is, and the experience of even reading it made my skin crawl. The biggest addition and change that Albie makes, without a doubt, is a character called A Certain Gentleman, a narrator to the story who is meant to be a stand-in for Nabokov himself, who guides Humbert Humbert through the play and exposes him to the audience for the monster he is. Ordinarily, Humbert is our narrator, and he manipulates us into seeing the events of Lolita his way. Albie takes the route of using the character of a certain gentleman to show us how the author of this show is manipulating Humbert, who in turn is manipulating us, the audience. A certain gentleman will say things like, tis, 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 dirty old man, when Humbert says something that is clearly reflecting the mindset of a child sex abuser. And this kind of creates this air of distance and annoyance that a certain gentleman has with the protagonist. 
And I was pretty fascinated by that choice because I think it helps in some ways and in hurts in others. It's definitely the clearest tool I've ever seen used to make it clear that Humbert is not reliable, is not noble, is not an artist, but it also strangely works against the production by having it made constantly clear that another person is making Humbert's decisions for him. It almost succeeds more in making us question Nabokov than the child sexual abuser he's writing about. It creates a strange amount of distance. It's a choice. It's effective in some moments and then in others completely distances you from Humbert's evilness. It's also worth mentioning that Albie was suffering from alcoholism rather badly at the time of this production and was constantly undergoing rewrites to get the play to where it needed to be. Meanwhile, Donald Sutherland was rumored to be putting pressure on Albie to make Humbert more likable, which was definitely not to be. But that is another interesting trend in the adaptations. Everyone wants to play Humbert until they're playing him. All said and done, there were a number of different scripts written in this play's quick march to death in 1981, one version of which ended up getting published. That's the one that I read for this podcast. Albie is also the first and, to my knowledge, the only gay man who has worked on a Lolita adaptation at the highest level. I got a little more context on this show from Jacob Holder, the executive director of the Albie Foundation. Albie passed away in 2016. And over the summer, he talked to me about what that play was like and where it fell in Albie and Lolita's career. You worked with him from 01 uh, through his death, uh, I guess I am looking for, I guess, some uh, perspective on what you feel um, drew him to this material, to Lolita, in the first place. So he got through a really bad period in the 1980s where American theaters wouldn't touch his work. But Lolita is one of three plays that are really seen as the period right before his fall uh, from popularity. And and the reason I reread piece in the biography to make sure that I wasn't... He hated when people did too much uh, analyzing of his own personal life mm-hmm. in terms of how that relates to his work because he didn't believe in the concept. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't want to add a layer on that he didn't himself uh, suggest, but his drinking was out of control during that time period. So Lolita, you may already know this, his version of it, he had intended to be at least a three-act play. Yes. And... He intended it for it to be over the course of two evenings, which when I read about that, I've done as much research as I felt like I could spend any time doing, mm-hmm. trying to find what version would have taken two nights. And while I didn't do that, I, I found the original, which is a three-act version. Mm-hmm. And I read both that, and I read what is considered, you know, what anyone can put on if they wanted to, which is the drama's play service uh, acting edition. That's two acts. But you're dealing, obviously, the question of, like, how did the creators feel about their work versus what wound up uh, occurring? Right. Uh, the, the nature, obviously, of their art versus commercial sensibility is always going to be strongly at war. So if you have a producer who's terrified, you think, okay, this is great. This is risky material that will bring in an audience. Mm-hmm. But I can't let this thing be three hours long or four hours long because it's going to bore everybody and we're going to get reviews that say that this is a ho-hum show. We need to make this thing tight. And then you have Donald Sutherland probably in his ego thinking, all right, I'm already playing somebody who's going to be perceived as horribly reprehensible. So I need to make this thing as funny as possible or as light as possible. Or, you know, almost mm-hmm. I'm going to play it in a way that shows that I'm also sort of outside of it. And I'm, I'm, I'm commenting on it through my performance. So my guess is that there was a lack of trust in the material mm-hmm. from 
the actor who wanted to show his best, because obviously all actors are concerned about how they're being perceived, because if it goes wrongly, not only could it be perceived that the acting was bad, but also, you know, who wants to be then associated with their last role as, you know, one of the more famous pedophiles in literature. So that can impact his career. Whereas for Edward, it would be all about getting as much to the brutal truth of what this piece is supposed to be communicating. But I think that Edward was probably like looking for the best possible Broadway producer at the time to work with. And it was just not a match made in heaven. I guess how involved was the Nabokov estate in, um, you know, reading through drafts and um, interacting with the play as it was developed? As far as I got a sense of it, it wasn't friendly uh, on either side. It was very much uh, an aggressive thing, but he conceded to just changing it to to a certain gentleman and, you know, draw from it what you will, uh, which is obviously that it's supposed to be a stand-in for the writer. The other thing is not only is it that, you know, ACG or VN can be a stand-in, uh, almost an interviewer, but obviously from, from moment one in the play, he says, this is a character of my own creation. So you're dealing now also with, well, wait a second, how can you, be, how can you actually be even at all judgmental of this character? Because this character essentially, we're being told, it doesn't really exist. Who right. exists? You do. It's mm-hmm. just you at the end of the day. It's, it's the dark recesses of your mind. It's not his. You're in control of all of this. And what's fascinating is that Edward would have been very aware of the rules of, you know, you present the universe and you stick to those rules. You don't worry about the universe we live in. That's for outside the theater doors. Once you step inside the space, forget you, forget your mores, forget your, your ethical code, your Ten Commandments. It's about the universe on stage. I, you know, I don't think he ever did it. He clearly didn't do anything with Lolita that he truly intended because I, there I go again where I don't get why he allowed the two act version to be published if he said that was sort of the, the, the bastard accident right. uh, at the end of this terrible journey with a bad producer and a bad actor. Thank you so much to Jacob Holder. So what happens in this adaptation? I won't rehash the whole thing for you because there's no horrifying music, but it's very different from Lolita, My Love. And I'd like to point out some of the bigger subversions from other interpretations for better and for worse. We already talked about a certain gentleman who is on stage with Humbert for the entire show, but there are other elements worth noting as well. Having read the play a couple of times, it feels pretty clear to me that Nabokov and Albi clash in storytelling style. The swears and the forthright sexuality constant references to erections on stage, overt racism and homophobic comments to turn an audience against a character. These are all very Albie style choices, but they're almost certainly something that Nabokov would not have liked. Now we'll get to the choices that I think Albie makes somewhat effectively in a minute, but I just want to lay it out. The show is a failure in more ways than not. While Albie lets us know that Humbert is an irredeemable criminal in no uncertain terms, he succeeds in making the rest of the characters from the story leagues more unlikable than they were in the original storytelling, particularly Charlotte and Dolores Hayes. Charlotte Hayes is explicitly racist in nearly every scene she appears in in the Albie play. 
particularly when speaking to her black housekeeper, Louise. And Lolita makes similar comments later in the show that are not present in the book. They both make anti-Semitic comments as well, or a certain gentleman when this happens, as if to say, isn't that awful? I would never say that. And it is awful. It's fucking terrible. But since this show isn't making us watch Humbert manipulate this narrative, we are instead watching a certain gentleman do that, this succeeds only in making us hate Charlotte and Lolita. I don't know what Albie is really going for here, but the comments that are made by these characters are absolutely horrific. Now, going back to the book quickly, that is not to say that Charlotte does not make fucked up racial and anti-Semitic comments in the Nabokov book. There are several moments where she hints at anti-Semitism in particular, and these are obviously worth singling out and criticizing. So I wanted to share a quick insight on that topic from Dana Dragonoyu, a Nabokovian we spoke with in episode two about the comments that Charlotte makes in the book. Something that I certainly didn't pick up on my first, you know, several reads of Lolita, but the references to, you know, his feelings on anti-Semitism. Yes, I mean, um, um, he was very progressive on race um, for a man of his time, like exceptionally so. And um, in part, he inherited that from his father. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Nabokov himself comes from a very kind of Caucasian, aristocratic, uh, upper-middle-class background. Mm -hmm. But his father um, was very close friends with a lot of Jewish intellectuals, and his father put his career on the line and even lost a lot by uh, reporting very fearlessly on the... um, on the Mendel Bailey's affair. So his own father championed uh, Jewish uh, Jewish causes for the entirety of his life. Mm-hmm. Um, it is for that reason that Nabokovs are able to sail on one of the last boats sailing out of France mm-hmm. uh, because the Jewish League had paid for them in, in recognition of what the father had done. And Nabokov himself marries a Jewish woman in spite of the fact that he knew that the female members of his family would not approve of it. Thank you again to Dana. So Edward Albee is not inventing this within Charlotte Hayes, but he is turning it up to an 11 and using every tool at his disposal to get the audience to actively root for Charlotte's demise. And the way I was reading it, by the time she's killed, it's a relief. Albie seems to be using insensitive language and views in his characters to get you to root for a child sexual abuser to murder them, which is a moral hedge maze I wasn't even aware existed. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. 
So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty, beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. There is a lot to be said about how Albie treated race in his work. He, both during his life and later with his estate, has been resistant to casting Black actors in some of his greatest works, especially Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. And this was a decision that was widely criticized and eventually overturned. So there's a ton to talk about there and about racism in casting on Broadway in general that I don't have time to tackle in this episode. But I would start by referring you to a piece by writer Kyle Turner called Who's Afraid of White Fragility? That's a good place to start if you're interested in learning more. I will link that in the notes. Albie does succeed in making it the clearest of all of the adaptations I've encountered that Humbert Humbert is an unreliable narrator and a despicable person, but he still fails to bring Lolita to the forefront in any meaningful way. Let me give you some examples of what I'm talking about here. Here is an exchange from the play. Humbert says... That darling child is a temptress. She is an nymphette. Then a certain gentleman replies, No, really. She looks like an ordinary little girl to me. He turns to the audience. Yes, I'm sure she does. And to you, too, as well, I dare say. Unless... Unless I am not alone. Unless there is one of you out there like me. One of you who knows. One of you who senses the beauty, the thrill, the danger. Is there a pedophile in the house? That's right. That line ends with parentheses, loud hiss. The biggest change from the source material, besides the addition of a certain gentleman, is probably Charlotte's death. Instead of the incredibly convenient death that Humbert Humbert constructs, where she is hit by a car at just the right moment, Albie has Charlotte pull a gun on Humbert when she learns of his diaries that are condemning her and planning to rape Lolita. While doing so, in this version, she falls down the stairs and dies of a head injury. And the impact of Charlotte dying right in front of us is much different than what we experience in the book and some of the other adaptations. In a roundabout way, seeing her die before our eyes validates Humbert's claim that her death was a convenient win for him. 
and gets rid of all of the ambiguity and suspicion of Humbert and questions that arrive from Charlotte's death happening outside of the juror's plain sight. We see other things like Charlotte's funeral in detail, Humbert telling a certain gentleman that he intends to abduct Lolita, and we also see this, I'm not kidding. Charlotte sits straight up in her coffin, calls Humbert a molester, and says she will see him in hell. I especially don't like how this adaptation treats Lolita. For me, the intense detailed descriptions of Humbert's intent to abuse her, the actual nudity on stage of Blanche Baker or Lolita, as well as a certain gentleman asking Humbert how she was, quote unquote, indicates that Albie clearly wants to confront the audience with how disgusting Humbert's crimes are, but still manages to paint out Lolita as the seductress in the process, and even exploits her body to make his point. This just did not work. We understand Humbert's monstrosity, but the way Albie writes, we are not encouraged to have any empathy for his victim. You can read it if you really want to, but it's like gross. It just, it goes so far in the other direction that even reading it on the page was deeply unsettling because it just feels exploitative and understands that it's exploitative, but keeps doubling and doubling and doubling down. There are some scenes where it truly just felt to me like Edward Albee was trying to think of the most disgusting, gross, horrific thing he could think of and then just made someone do that. Final thing that struck me about this adaptation was the final time that we see Lolita on stage. At the end of a scene, Humbert, still accompanied by a certain gentleman, literally wills Lolita away before going to Quilty's mansion to murder him. After we've seen her, 17 and pregnant, have this interaction with Humbert, Lolita fades from the story, just as she does in the book, but in a much more self-aware way than we see at other points. Here's a bit from this scene. Lolita says, you can tell him all about what I'm like in bed, and he can tell you. Humbert replies, You are vanishing. And the stage directions indicate that the lights begin to go down on Lolita. Lolita says, Huh? Pardon? And her spotlight continues to fade. Humbert says, Goodbye, Lolita. Hey! Lolita says. Humbert says, You have disappeared. And by this time, he is right. Lolita is completely engulfed in darkness. There is still one more scene after this. Humbert goes to Quilty's house to murder him. After he's killed, a certain gentleman tells Humbert what Lolita's fate was, her death, her baby. Humbert asks what he should do next, and a certain gentleman, the narrator of this production, tells Humbert, trigger warning, that Humbert is going to masturbate to Lolita over Quilty's dead body. And he starts to do that, and that's the end of the play. Now, it's hard to compare and contrast these failed Broadway shows. Not only are they completely different genres of theater, but it's impossible to watch them since they never actually opened. I do find it interesting that the actresses cast to play Lolita, at least in the case of Denise Nickerson in Lolita My Love and Blanche Baker in Edward Albee's Lolita, were both styled to look very similar to Sue Lyon in the Kubrick adaptation, the blonde bombshell approach that completely contradicts Nabokov's description of Dolores, a lanky brunette who is, by all accounts, an ordinary-looking kid. That's a whole issue we're going to keep discussing in future episodes, and one of the reasons it's indisputably always going to be an issue 
adapting Lolita with actors. Part of what makes the book so horrifying is that we know that Dolores Hayes is a 12-year-old, and reflecting that on stage, no matter how sensitively done, with a child who is 12 is inarguably unsafe. Nickerson does a good job in the part of Lolita in the rehearsal recording that you can hear, but the message of the show isn't just muddled, it tries to have a child the age that the book indicates also match the uncanny seductress role that Humbert Humbert casts her in, and tries to have both be true. Not only does it not work, it makes the listener very uncomfortable to hear a kid have to play. So not only is this a failure on the writer's part to acknowledge that Humbert's account is unreliable, I think the tonal dissonance in how Nickerson is presented by Humbert and Quilty in Lolita My Love as this seductress with how we see her on stage as a kid singing about how she never wanted any of this. It scans very odd, because it is odd, not just because a girl of Dolores Hayes' age can't contain multitudes, but because having Humbert's false reality projected onto a 13-year-old as if it's fact, and a light-hearted fact at that, is so disorienting that you almost have to laugh and hope that Nickerson was protected behind the scenes given Chris Gilmore's account of her experiences. Then in Albie's Lolita, the dissonance is a little different. We are absolutely led to believe that Lolita brings her ordeal onto herself, but the friction between Humbert Humbert and his own author is the strongest relationship focused upon. Now, there's no public record of Baker's performance in Albie's Lolita, but playing the role at 24, even though Baker did tend to play younger roles at this point in her career, there's no doubt that an audience would be able to tell the difference between an actor of Denise Nickerson's age and one of Blanche Baker's. This is not a slight to Baker at all, and I think in terms of production ethics, it's the responsible choice, especially with the gritty, gross choices that Albie makes. Having an actual minor in that role night after night would be as unacceptable as Nabokov thought it would be in the early 1970s. But there's still a conflict here. Seeing an actress in her 20s, even one who appears to be in her teens, act in the role of seductress with Humbert Humbert strikes a slightly different tone on stage than the 12-year-old we hear about in the book. And this repeated tendency to show sexualized adults as representative of children creates a dissonance that strikes with actual children. I mean, you can go to Riverdale for that. You can go to any show about teenagers that's on broadcast television where all of the quote-unquote teenagers are played by people 10 years older than them. There have been so many listeners of this show who have reached out to me, not having read the book before, saying that their cultural osmosis of this story of Lolita was that Lolita was about a pervy older man hitting on and having sex with a teenage girl presented to the viewer as sexy. As we all know now, five episodes in, that's not the plot of the book, but the popular images even up through the Albie production in the 1980s, reinforce that common takeaway. So much of this story's legacy are driven by aesthetics, and Nabokov was well aware of that. In the afterword to Lolita, called On a Book Entitled Lolita, he writes this. For me, a work of fiction exists only insofar as it affords what I shall bluntly call aesthetic bliss, that is, a sense of being somehow somewhere, connected with other states of being where art, curiosity, tenderness, kindness, ecstasy, is the norm. This is a lot of why I think this story is considered by many to be unadaptable. It is about crimes so horrific that acting them out on stage with actors the same age as the characters is unthinkable. 
And yet they persist, finding workarounds, using actors of the correct age for Lolita and watering the material down, or conversely, using an older actor for Lolita and misrepresenting the reality of the story's abject horror. And I'll be clear here, the abuse of a person in their upper teens is no less horrifying and contemptible. But there's an additional issue. The men adapting this story write with the assumption that Lolita is not just able to consent, but is actively seducing Humbert, just as he says in the text. I'll take you back to that quote from Norman Twain from earlier. We've got to have a girl who makes a man forget the moral conventions of society. But it's got to be a complete mental situation. If Lolita's five foot five with a great figure, it would be perfectly normal for Humbert to go after her. This was an attitude that existed loudly and commonly at this time. So a live-action interpretation of this story, particularly a nightly one, becomes a basically unworkable idea from a performance perspective, in my opinion. Personally, as an animation writer, I think it's animation or bust on this one, but that's another episode. But that isn't to say, if this live-action issue were miraculously resolved, that these Broadway attempts would have been successful. There is no way. Because there is the, and I hate to use the, these 101 terms with you, you're smarter than this, but I have to use it. There is the male gaze of it all with the way Lerner and Barry in 1971 and Albie in 1981 are undoubtedly coming from a place of prioritizing Humbert's voice and predicament, though with very different approaches. Unlike Nabokov's book, Lolita, or Dolores, isn't really hiding in the pages of these plays. She's not there at all. Quilty's role is inflated in both. Unreliability is attempted to be addressed, but ultimately either ends up endearing you to Humbert or making him seem less responsible for his choices by including a writer on stage. And as always, Lolita's role is reduced to that of seductress who really barely appears. Before we leave this chapter in Lolita adaptation history, I wanted to share another small slice of an interview I did with Blanche Baker, who played Lolita in the Albie play and is an Emmy-winning actor and professor. I'll remind you here that Baker was the daughter of an actress named Carol Baker, whose part in the movie Baby Doll in the 1950s was a huge influence on how Sue Lyon was styled in Kubrick's Lolita in the 1960s. And this family through line of these very specific rigid sexual aesthetics being asked of their performances is not lost on Blanche Baker. Reflecting an issue had by virtually every actor who has played Lolita that I've spoken to, her issues with taking on the role had much more to do with her treatment by the media and the public. Unlike others, Baker had a generally positive experience with the casting crew of the Albie production. Here's a little slice of our discussion about her experience with the media around the time of this show in 1981. The show runs, from what I've seen, the, sh the show ran for a couple of weeks um, after Boston previews. What was that switch from Boston to New York like? That was the onslaught of publicity. So that was, that was very difficult. Um, you know, and I had to be very careful. I was a young girl. I didn't have a lot of money and stuff, and I, I was being followed after the show and stuff, and I had to have people meet me. I remember it was really not so pleasant, that aspect. Once I was, uh, before I got on the stage and after I got off the stage, it really wasn't a heck of a lot of fun. 
anytime I went to a party, people were really looking at me. So I stopped going to parties. I really became more of a recluse than you would imagine mm-hmm. because I felt like I couldn't live up to what people expected. That was my own insanity, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but I felt like they would expect me to be prettier, expect me to be, you know, sexier, forget that I was an actress. So I was just very uncomfortable uh, for a while in my own skin. Thank you so much to Blanche Baker, and like Chris Gilmore, we will be speaking more with her soon. Okay, I know this is getting to be a long episode again, but really quick. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Lolita has made other attempts on stage over the years with varying, usually low degrees of success that I would like to touch on really quickly but not as in-depth because they are in no way as notorious as the two shows we've talked about so far. But for the sake of completeness, it is a weird list. All right, let's roll through these. There is the Russian Opera of Lolita from 1994 by composer Rodion Shedrin, which debuted at the Swedish Royal Opera with a Swedish translation of the Russian libretto. Lolita was played by a 25-year-old soprano. This is arguably one of the more successful and enduring adaptations, as it still plays today every once in a while, but that's not to say that it gets the point of the story. It's been performed in Russian, Swedish, and German. Now, speaking to this problematic approach, uh, let's hear from Shedrin on his interpretation of the story. It feels like a nostalgia for beauty. It is a symbol, really. For me personally, Lolita as a character is less of a human being, but rather an archetype. 
A symbol of beauty, but a fleeting beauty. Okay, yikes. And that's also not to say that the reviews of this show were good. Here's what Michael Walsh of Time said in 1999. Unfortunately, the novel has more music on a single page. Shedron's lazy, impotent score is loutish when it's not downright sullen. So there's that. Also, it's four hours long. Moving on. There are several ballet productions that I've found records of, one which was choreographed by British dancer Kathy Marston in 2015 in Denmark that, based on its trailer, really seems to play up Lolita's role as seductress, as a torturer of Humbert. She even, like, grins maniacally at the camera at the end. 1999 brought another attempted opera in Boston from composer John Harbison, which ends up getting canceled when the clergy child abuse scandal in Boston happened in 2002. In 2003, a lot of attempts. Writer Michael West staged some of Nabokov's unused screenplay from the 1962 movie in Dublin, Ireland, and people didn't like it. Reviewer Hiroko Mikami said in particular the way that sex was staged between Humbert and Lolita, which already I'm like, no thank you. But Mikami says the way it was staged, he felt clearly placed the blame of a rape onto the victim. Also in 2003, Russian director Viktor Sobchak wrote a stage adaptation that gets rid of Quilty entirely and changes the setting to England in the early 2000s. Also in 2003, Italian choreographer David Bombana did a 70-minute ballet adaptation that skewed extremely erotic based on clips I've seen, with Lolita and Humbert looking very sensual. There's a number of duet dance numbers that have been inspired by Lolita and Humbert over the years, all of which have a very forbidden love tone. I'll link some below. It's a little more intriguing. There was a one-man show from 2009 written by Richard Nelson that features Humbert Humbert speaking to the audience from a prison cell years later. This production was pretty well-reviewed, and while Dolores obviously never appears on stage, it couldn't be clearer, according to the reviews of the time, that Humbert is projecting and unreliable. And Brian Cox played him here, who is the daddy in succession. And we know he can play a really mean guy. Also in 2009, American composer Joshua Feinberg and choreographer Johann Saunier made a quote-unquote imagined opera in New Jersey that was a multimedia production. Humbert Humbert uses screens and dance and video to demonstrate his dissent and obsession. This was pretty well reviewed in the New York Times, but given how reviewer Steve Smith characterizes the source material, I don't really know who to trust here. Here's how Steve Smith talks about the story. Is Humbert Humbert a suave, calculating seducer, or a pretentious delusional monster? Might he also be a relatable victim, not only of his own urges, but also of those of Dolores Hayes, the child with whom he is obsessed? But clips from this production seem to strike closer to the right tone. I do wish I could have seen it. And finally, there is a Minnesota comedy group called Four Humors that did a three-person production based on the Kubrick movie in 2013. All the parts are played by white guys. It's clearly an over-the-top comedy, and like Lolita is played by a chubby guy in his 30s wearing a bikini. Like, I'm just, I'm just, I'm tough. I don't know about you, but I was exhausted just having to listen to that. And like, no offense if, if these guys are, are listening, I guess, but sometimes you just get the feeling that a guy watches three episodes of Monty Python and is like, I think I'm a comedian. And it's like, no, I think you just 
hold prejudices from the early 1970s. Whatever. I'm a comedian and this is lame as fuck. And that's the comprehensive list up till now. But all this to say, there has been a lot of attempts. And on stage, none of them have been enduring. And you'll notice that there were only one or two women involved in any of the above in a creative high-level sense. Which brings us to the present. The final adaptation I want to discuss is one I found to be the most intriguing. It was a revival of the Alan J. Lerner musical Lolita My Love that was performed in New York in 2019 as a part of a celebration of his work. And the director of this production of Lolita My Love was, drumroll please, a woman (laughs) was not a cis man. Can you believe? It's, wow, it's really incredible stuff. It takes 65 years, but, but you get there. The director of the 2019 revival of Lolita My Love is named Emily Maltby. She took on the challenge of creating a workshop performance of the show by cobbling and restructuring all of the drafts that Lerner wrote throughout the 70s. Working with composer Eric Hogginson, Maltby managed to create a pretty contemporary version of the show that still used Lerner's work exclusively, adding in a character that was a therapist speaking to Humbert to address the unreliability that goes undiscussed in the original. Again, I have not seen this show, but I know many who have, and given the fact that Maltby was only given a handful of weeks to get the production together, it sounds like a pretty unique moment in Lolita adaptation history. We'll be talking to her more in the finale of the pod, but I wanted to end this episode speaking with her about her process of wading through learners' drafts and finding stuff she could use, as well as her approach to taking on not just Nabokov's Lolita, but learners. Here's our discussion. I just couldn't believe that this 14 year old girl was so, was so into this. And so mm. one of the things we did was basically I went through the script and I highlighted the moments that if I were Humbert, I would, would be my like prime examples of how interested of how she behaved like a Lolita, right? How okay. she manipulated him, how she coaxed whatever, how much she wanted it, how much she was into it, whatever. I found all of those moments sort of highlighted them and they were really like you know a passage here an interaction here whatever um and so we would play a little like echo of this synth music the lights would change um to like this sort of insidious green and this like stark white up light um and the actress playing lolita who i should say was 24 but she's very small um Mm -hmm. but i was very adamant from the beginning that we're not casting an underage actress Mm -hmm. um but she she went from this, you know, rambunctious 14 year old kind of energy and she would essentially like go into like a trance. She would go into like, you know, uh, uh, she would sort of lose all of her agency and he would, um, and then she would just deliver these lines as if, as if he was like puppeting them to her or parroting them to her. Right. And, and he would like, you know, not quite as literally as like controlling her like a marionette, but that was the sort of idea was that, you know, there were these moments and we kind of, I couldn't give her extra lines. I couldn't give her a voice, but I could show you that her voice was being taken from her. Maybe what you're seeing didn't actually happen mm-hmm. in that way, you know, and, and maybe he's coloring it. And so there were just these couple of moments that for him were these key moments where we just got a sense of like, he was kind of manipulating the storytelling and we had this thing in the very first song where she came out, you know, with a sweatshirt and her hair up. And then over the course of the song, 
the ensemble like at his command, you know, took her hair down and took the sweatshirt off. And then he kind of um, trained her to tuck her hair behind her ears. Mm. And it was just sort of this like creation of Lolita, this idea of like Lolita being a different character from Dolores. Thank you so much to Emily Maltby, and we will be hearing from her soon. And if you thought we talked about the aesthetics of Lolita today, honey, buckle up. We are taking a week off next week because my brain is melting out of my ears and it's the holidays. But in our next episode, we are diving into the visual legacy of Lolita. I'm talking music. I'm talking niche fashion communities. Not that one, Lolita Fashion Friends, but there are fashion communities, as well as interviews with some of the creators and people influenced by them. That's coming up on our next episode of Lolita Podcast. Happy holidays. Sorry, my podcast is so sad. This has been a production of iHeartRadio. My name is Jamie Loftus. I write and host the show. My producers are the wonderful Sophie Lichterman, Miles Gray, Beth Ann Macaluso, and Jack O'Brien. My editor is the amazing Isaac Taylor. Additional research and transcription from Ben Loftus. Music is by Zoe Blade. Theme is by Brad Dickert. I wanted to also thank my guest voices on this episode, Aziz Vora as Humbert Humbert, Robert Evans as Vladimir Nabokov, Joelle Smith, Anna Hosnier, Pallavi Gunalan, and Aristotle Acevedo. We'll see you next week. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah! And some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that! A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in! Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it! Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.